Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies on iTunes and via the web. I'm Nick Cheesman, a research fellow in the Australian National University's Coral Bell School of Asia-Pacific Affairs. Over the last decade, debates about political turmoil in Thailand have loomed large in talk shows, chat rooms and public lectures. From the military coup of 2006 that ousted the government of Thaksin Shinawat to the tumultuous years after the restoration of civilian government and the latest coup of 2014, events in Thailand have held our attention. Much of the time, these events are reduced to simplistic binaries, yellow shirts and red shirts, elites and commoners, urbanites and rural dwellers. Today we go beyond the binaries to talk with Andrew Walker, a professor at the ANU's College of Asia and the Pacific about his 2012 book, Thailand's Political Peasants, Power in the Modern Rural Economy, published by the University of Wisconsin Press. Rural politics in contemporary Thailand, Walker advises, is not the old resistant politics of the rural poor. Rather, it is a new middle-income politics, a politics through which rural people seek out productive connections with sources of power, in this fundamental shift in the thinking and practices of rural people, Walker argues, we find the basis of support for a new type of constitutionalism, as well as the sources of grievances that have led, at least in part, to the conflicts of the last decade. Thailand's political presence deftly guides the reader through the many domains of power that constitute rural politics in Thailand, from the world of matrilinear spirits to organic fertilizer projects and electoral politics. If you do want to get behind the news headlines and better understand how Thailand, and with it, much of contemporary Southeast Asia is changing, and why, I do recommend you take a look at this book. Meantime, I hope you enjoy the interview. Today on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, I am talking with Andrew Walker, author of Thailand's Political Peasants. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Nick. Could you just begin by saying a little bit about yourself? I think some of our audience will, will know your work already, and uh, 
anybody who's looked at the new Mandela website will certainly be familiar with who you are and what you're doing, but uh, please, a brief introduction. I'm an anthropologist. I've been working here at the ANU for 20 years now, um, initially as a PhD student, and I did work on cross-border trading um, in the far north of Thailand and across the border into Laos and, and southern China. Um, that was my first research in the region. And since then, I've switched directions a couple of times. After that, I did a range of research on environmental issues in northern Thailand and in particular water resource management. And that led in a fairly indirect sort of way to this study that produced this book, which was quite a localised ethnographic study of a town in, in northern Thailand. So as an anthropologist, I've been doing field work in various guises in, in the north of Thailand for about 20 years. You've mentioned a couple of times that you trained in anthropology and yet you took an interest in water resource management and indeed much of the book we'll be talking about has a, a an orientation towards resource management and, and economics. So perhaps yeah. you could say a bit more about that aspect of your interest before we go into Yeah, well, I've, I've always had a, an interest in economic issues. I, I did a major in economics in my undergraduate degree. I can't say I was particularly good at economics, but I've always been interested... I suppose, as an anthropologist in the fundamental issue of how do people go about making a living. Um, there's obviously a lot of issues that, that worry anthropologists in the modern world, issues of culture and identity and symbolism and all that, and I think that's all very important. But I suppose in some senses I'm a bit of an old-fashioned materialist and I think the basic ways in which people go about earning a living is fundamentally important and that's always oriented me, I suppose, towards economic issues and, and resource issues. And those interests do emerge very strongly in this book, so perhaps we can get down to it. Are Thailand's political peasants, who are they and why did they matter enough for you to write a book about them? I've always had an interest in, in rural people, um, perhaps you know, a little bit of a personal reflection. My, my father is an agricultural scientist and as a young fellow I spent a bit of time with him going around rural areas of Australia. So I've always had that slight interest in, in matters rural and when I started working in Thailand, in, initially on trading issues, um, I was living in a relatively rural area and the trajectories of development of rural Thailand re really caught my interest um, so that's, and it's a, it's a place where, where I feel frankly most comfortable and most at ease, uh, much more so than, than in the, the cities of Thailand. Now who are these political peasants? Uh, I suppose one thing to address right at the outset is, you know, why have I used the word peasants, um, to refer to rural people? Uh, and I've got two answers for that. One's a slightly flippant answer, one's more serious. The flippant answer is, I just really like the term. I've really liked the term peasant um, since I was at school when we did a little bit of a study of feudalism and learning about these peasants really struck me as a very intriguing and interesting thing. Um, more seriously, I'll start, I suppose, with a rhetorical question. If we're not going to call them peasants, what are we going to call them? Now, people have struggled with this. We could call rural dwellers in Thailand rural dwellers, which strikes me as 
pretty descriptive and, and not very analytical. Um, some people say to me, well, why didn't you call them farmers, Andrew? And, I was, and my answer to that is, well, one of the key arguments in the book is that while agriculture is very important to people in terms of economy and identity, these people, by and large, earn as much money, if not more money, off-farm than they do on-farm. So to call them farmers is simply misleading. Um, people have tried to come up with other terms that we could describe it, rural cosmopolitans or whatever. Um, I think we could, we could play with those terms, but I think peasant is a respectable and long-established term that's, that's worth dusting off and reviving. And let me explain a little bit why I think it's worth dusting off and reviving. I think there's a few elements in, in the classic definition of peasants which um, really helps focus analytical attention on what's going on in Thailand. First, one of the core definitions of peasants is a relationship with an external authority, typically a landlord or, or a representative of the state. And I think that political relationship with external power is central to understanding what's going on in Thailand now. As I'll talk about later, I think it's a very different relationship to the classic relationships peasants have with the state, but the fact that the relationship's there I think is crucially important. And, and there's other issues in, in the definition of peasant, um, a focus on the household as a key institution for coordinating resource allocation and labour allocation and pooling resources and consumption. I still think that's very relevant. Um, the importance of the local community as a point of reference. Um, I think that remains important, though, as I talk about in the book, ways that are very different. So, so in a sense, I think some of those key elements of how we've talked about peasants remain important even though they've now changed and have different meanings to what they did in the past. You've offered some cogent reasons for the use of the term peasant and also given us some sense of why they are political. But a term that emerges constantly throughout the book isn't just that these are peasants or political peasants, but they are middle-income peasants. And it seems to me that part of the issue here also concerns this other aspect, this other dimension of their character in Thailand in particular. So can you tell us who or what is the middle-income peasant and how does that relate to what you've said already? Yeah, that's, that's an important question. And once again, it's one that's central to the book. And the term I use, middle-income peasant, in the book, in a sense, it's, it's something of a provocation. It's something of a provocation to people to think about rural people and to think about peasants um, in new ways. We, we become very comfortable in academic and popular discourse with talking about the rural poor, the impoverished peasantry, the, the poor people of northeast Thailand descending on Bangkok to protest. And this book is making an argument that there has been a fundamentally important transition in rural Thailand and this is occurring in many other parts of the world. This is by no means unique to Thailand. And that is the transition from rural poverty, um, from a preoccupation with subsistence to what I call a much more middle-income state where the pressures of subsistence are much, much less 
where there is a much greater buffer between people's livelihoods and subsistence failure and where the economic and political preoccupations shift from defending a subsistence base, the sort of things James Scott wrote about very famously in The Moral Economy of the Peasant, they shift from that to a preoccupation with productivity, um, inequality and government subsidy. So in a sense, I wouldn't want to get into a prolonged argument with people about the sociological or statistical legitimacy of the term middle-income peasant. I'm, I'm using the term to point to the fact that there's been a shift in the core economic and political dynamic in rural Thailand. There's one other term that you bring up in the introduction. It's not your term, but it's also important to this story. And before we get into the village, which I think I'd like to do soon, I'd also like to mention this term briefly, and that's Chatterjee's political society. Yeah. Can you explain why that term also matters for this book and for your discussion of rural politics in Thailand? Yeah, a really, really important term and a, and a really, I think, useful conceptual contribution by Partha Chatterjee um, and a complex contribution. So let me try to simplify it a, a little here. I think one of the key contrasts that Chatterjee's work draws is between civil society and political society. Now, I took up that distinction because a lot of the discussion of rural politics in, in Thailand and other parts of Southeast Asia has been preoccupied with civil society, with formal associations, with non-government organisations, with the Forum of the Poor and other groups like that in Thailand. And my experience working in rural northern Thailand was that at a local level, these civil society organisations weren't particularly relevant. And, and I'd also say that the agendas they pursued didn't really very well represent the, the livelihood interests of people in rural Thailand. So, so I got interested, interested in a different type of politics, and that is a much more grassroots style of politics. And, and picking up on Chatterjee's work... It's a style of politics characterised by all sorts of informal, um, sometimes illegitimate, sometimes what we might call corrupt, interactions between local people and agents of the state. So I saw that as the, the key new locus of political power in, in rural Thailand, this informal network of interaction um, between rural people and agents of the state. And borrowing from Chatterjee, borrowing that term political society, I've used that to describe this particular sphere. You have a great deal more to say in the introduction of the book um, about these aspects of your, your research and also about the notion of power, which is central to the book. But maybe before we keep delving into the conceptual side... Tell us a bit about where you did your work and perhaps offer some illustrations of some of the points you've already made through uh, remarks on the village and its life. Yes, well, I, I came across the village that in the book I call Bantiam um, pretty much by accident. I mentioned before that I spent a few years working on environmental and resource management projects in northern Thailand and 
I had some collaboration with the, the Royal Project Foundation in Thailand and one of their field stations was located on a mountain top in a district in Chiang Mai province and I remember one day standing on that mountain top and looking down into the valley to the west and seeing that there was a small district and a number of villages there and I thought what a wonderful looking place um, and indeed a little bit later I went there um, drove down there and I thought oh I'd really like to do some research here so there wasn't a lot of scientific basis to my site or case study selection Nick um, it was very much an accidental um, arriving at the place and I initially went to the village that I've called Barn Tiam um, to look at water resource management. I was really interested in the issue of how irrigation systems operate in the dry season um, when there's water shortages, how they share and allocate water. Um, as it happened, I arrived in the dry season of 2002-2003 um, to flooding um, it was the wettest dry season in northern Thailand in many, many years. Um, so my idea for research on, on that particular issue um, evaporated, so to speak, um, and I became interested in the problems of garlic cultivation. These farmers cultivate garlic. Um, listeners who grow a bit of garlic themselves will know that garlic doesn't like a lot of water and heavy rain in the dry season is disaster for garlic. And that led me into a, a study of the economics of the village, um, how people manage their livelihoods in the village. And then a few years later, there was another accident in Thailand, a very bad accident, the coup um, in 2006 um, against Thaksin Shinawat, uh, really focused my attention on issues of politics and how these rural people, many of whom were, were Thaksin supporters, um, connected to and engaged with the, the broader state and political system. Um, so Ban Tiam is a small village. It's in a relatively narrow valley um, in the north of Thailand in Chiang Mai province with a lovely river running down through the middle of the valley um, with paddy fields along the river, um, very common um, northern Thai settlement pattern. It's got about... Um, 450 people in the village, uh, though as I say in the book, defining who actually lives in the village and who doesn't is, is a bit of an academic exercise because these modern villages, as we know, are, are networked globally and locally and regionally networked and people move in and out of them. Um, but about 450 people there, Northern Thai, um, Buddhist, um, links close links with some of the upland communities round about it, particularly the Karen communities with whom they've had long-standing trading connection. Um, agriculturalists, in the wet season they grow rice, in the dry season they grow cash crops and the, the crop that was really famous in this village when I was first there um, was garlic and part of the book is a bit of a story about the sort of decline of garlic production. And, of course, as I've said, people have all sorts of other um, aspects to their livelihood and they work off-farm and they work in construction and labouring and work off in the city and young people study at university and all those sorts of things. The book, as you say, at a certain point gets into garlic in quite a lot of detail. It, it starts out with the coup and the decline of 
Taksin, or perhaps not so much the decline, but rather his removal. And in between, there is a lot of discussion about networks and、mm. what ties these issues together is indeed this notion of power that you use when talking about networks, and you distinguish that notion of power from traditional approaches to power, vertical and horizontal types.、Mm. Can you say something about power and maybe also illustrate it with a,、um, an example from the village where、okay. you're working? So I'm. Intellectually, really interested in the issue of power、um, and how people harness power, attach themselves to power, mobilise power、um, in pursuit of their livelihoods, and, and to make themselves feel safe and secure. And as you say in the book, I talk about some of the more traditional approaches to power and politics in rural Thailand.、Um, The classic paradigm from the fifties and sixties talked in terms of patron-client relations, where, to put things a little bit crudely, power lay with the patron,、um, and they would mobilise clients around them who would help、um, serve the interests of the patron, and the patron in return would provide protection for the clients.、Um, I say that's that's a classic paradigm. It's a bit outdated. Um, but I don't think we should throw it out. I think there's still a lot to be learned from from that sort of approach.、Um, another approach that became influential, especially given the the political polarisation in the 1970s, was a classic class study,、um, where we had notions of class struggle in rural Thailand, and rather than focusing on those those vertical patron-client linkages, this approach focused on.、Um, Horizontal linkages. Once again, I think in terms of the, some of the basic、um, rural-urban inequalities and some of the dynamics of that inequality,、um, focusing on some of those horizontal cleavages、um, is also interesting.、Um, but in the book, one of the things I tried to do is to introduce an approach to power that I suppose has a somewhat indigenous inflection about it.、Um, And I, my starting point for analysis of power here is, is, you know, not in the work of Max Weber or Karl Marx or, you know, Western social theory, but in looking at some of the ways in which people in the village attach themselves to power、um, or attach power to them.、Um, those, you know, many of you are familiar in in Thailand and other parts of Southeast Asia. Um, for example, people will tattoo themselves、um, to protect themselves,、um, to quite literally imbue themselves with power.、Um, I became very interested in, in, in the way people use um, string um, in ritual contexts to create quite literal networks、um, through which power, potency, merit, influence flows. And, and for a long time, in fact, until a publisher talked me out of it, my, my title for this book was String,、um, and the whole preoccupation there was the way in which、um, rural people create strings、um, to all sorts of power th- throughout their society. And、um, you know, I urge people just do a little bit of googling and, and look at some images of rituals. Being conducted in Thailand or many other parts of Southeast Asia, and look at the way string is used to 
link people together in networks for the flow of power. And that's not a bad metaphor for the arguments I'm pursuing in this book. That's the sort of um, a visual representation of the political society I'm trying to describe in the book. You track power across four domains, the spirit world, the state, the market, and the community. Mm -hmm. And these domains are also spread over the, the central chapters of the book. So maybe we can take them one at a time. Yep. You've introduced string, and, and indeed, to my mind, uh, uh, that immediately represents ritual and religious and spiritual activity. Mm. And hence, uh, let's begin with the, the spirit world, which is, in fact, the first chapter covering these domains. Why start with the spirit world? And what was in it that mattered so much for this problem of politics? Mm. Once again, this was a bit of a result of an accidental turn um, in my research. The, the, the house where I stayed, um, there was the, the, the elder mother, the grandmother, um, and her daughter, a woman of about my age, who had originally invited me to stay in the house. And one day I was just sitting there in the evening and I, I heard them talking. And I realised they were talking about um, the very famous um, people, yeah, and the matrilineal spirits um, in northern Thailand, which which have been written about by anthropologists a great deal um, in decades past. And I came to realise through talking to them that, in fact, I was staying in one of the houses that housed a lineage spirit, one of the key spirits in these matrilineal lineage systems. And that led me to ask and find out a lot more about it. And what I discovered is that the landscape in, in this village, and this is very typical of Thailand, is simply crowded with sources of spiritual power. And you can see this if you go to Thailand. There are spirit shrines everywhere. And everything people do, even in the very modern um, so-called secular world, people pay attention to these spirits. Um, sometimes it might be very brief, um, but if people are sitting down in the forest to have a meal on a trip, um, they'll tip a little bit of whiskey into the ground as an offering to the spirit. Um, at the beginning of the, the harvest at the, of the agricultural year, they'll make offerings to the spirits of the irrigation weir, the, the fields. Um, so I became very interested in the ways in which people try to connect their lives, their hopes, their aspirations, simple things like applying for a job or going to study or buying a new car, with this spirit world. And to me, what we were seeing here is, is people bringing spiritual power into their own personal networks of power. And I talk in, in the chapter about a number of different ways um, people do that focusing on, on the woman um, who, who was my host when I stayed in the village and some of the strategies she used um, quite creatively um, sometimes to, to sort of, in a sense, claim spirits as part of her, her personal political network. Give an example because you were involved in one or two of these stories and um, they are evocative yeah. of what you're describing. Yeah. Well, I suppose... One, one example, just let me tell a bit of a story. The, the woman I lived with, um, 
got a job away from the village in southern Thailand as a, as a housekeeper and, and went away. And um, in, in a very practical sense, um, before she went away, she would always make offerings to the spirits in the house and the spirits round about. Um, but there was, there was an interesting story, and I won't go into the anthropological um, complexities of it, um, but the house she was living in and the house that I was staying in was, in fact, the house of her father. So the spirit that lived in that house wasn't her matrilineal spirit. So it was really a spirit that, in a strict sense, she had no claim to. And what I document in the book is the way she constructed um, a claim to this spirit and also to the, the guardian spirit of, of the entire village um, in a way that I think we could describe as quite strategic, um, quite political. I think it was relevant to some of the family dynamics within her own family about inheritance of the house and inheritance of the property. It was also relevant to her position within the village uh, as a key leader uh, of the women's group in the village and as a real networker. Um, she was uh, a political vote broker. Um, so all this was part of the way in which she networked. And I'm sure indeed that I was part of her network. Um, spotted this Western anthropologist arriving in the village and thought, well, here's an opportunity to, to bring someone else um, potentially influential, potentially affluent um, into my network. So what she did with that matrilineal spirit that wasn't really her matrilineal spirit was entirely consistent with her broader networking, I suppose we could call it, behaviour. You used two expressions in this discussion on, on spirits and power that attracted my attention because they speak to the larger topic of the book. One is um, domestication of external power. Mm -hmm. Can you explain how that works in the spirit world and why that's a, a good analogy for what goes on in other parts of the book when talking about the state okay. and the market? Yep. Well, I love this term domestication and I think it is a powerfully insightful term for understanding political action um, in Southeast Asia. So let me, let me explain it in terms of a little story, the sort of foundational myth of the village, which has probably got some significant truth in it. Um, there were some men um, who travelled up the river valley looking for new land. And they came to this area, this opening between the hills, and thought this is a good place for a village. And one of the first things they did was... Um, establish a, a tiny temple. They, they bought a, an image of the Buddha with them and they established a tiny, tiny rustic shed in which they put the Buddha image. And they also created a small shrine um, for the local spirit um, that lived in the tree there and invited the spirit to come out of the tree and live in the shrine and to protect them. And that is the act of domestication. Um, spirits as you probably know, Nick, are, are wild and potentially hazardous things. Um, other people have written about them as sort of childlike and in need of socialisation, capricious, impatient, easily offended. So you have to deal with spirits carefully and the classic way in which people deal with them is by domesticating them. 
just like you domesticate a wild animal. You build them a little house and you feed them and you make offerings to them regularly. Um, so for me, this became a pretty powerful insight into the way in which um, you deal with other external sources of power. Um, the market, um, contract agriculture companies can be pretty wild and hazardous and capricious. So you've got to think of ways of domesticating them, of bringing them into your sphere of influence. Um, the state, agents of the state, officials, can be dangerous, can be wild, can come and take revenge. Similarly, we've got to think of ways in which they can be domesticated. So I think, I think it's, it's a powerful term. And I also think it's, in a sense, a political, politically useful term because, you know, to use a bit of a cliche, it puts a focus on people's agency. Um, people are not victims um, of external power all the time. Sometimes, of course, they are. But they also interact with that external power in an attempt to mould it, shape it, make it more malleable and acceptable to them. You've mentioned contract farming and the next chapter is on that topic and it seems like you've introduced it well. So why don't we move into it? How do people, in fact, um, make the, the powers, the forces associated with the international economy part of their own domain and how do they domesticate those forces for their own purposes uh, in the agricultural sector? Hmm. Well, it, 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 it's difficult and it's a work in progress and... In the book, I document a relatively early phase in that work in progress. Of course, contract farming has a pretty bad reputation. It's often seen as amounting to the, the, the virtual proletarianisation um, of rural people where they simply become wage labourers um, for um, capitalist agricultural firms. Uh, my experience... Um, leads to a somewhat more sympathetic approach in the book and it's based on a, an economic observation that one of the chronic problems with the economy of the village is a lack of capital. There's simply insufficient capital to invest in more productive areas of activity and the, the contracting companies respond to that need by providing, um, for the time being, relatively low-risk capital. Now, this is, this is a hazardous um, venture for farmers to enter into because you're potentially entering into you know, relations of dependency and exploitation. So, so how do farmers manage that? And I talk of a few ways they try to manage and domesticate this quite wild economy. Start off with some really basic things. They incorporate the agents of these companies into their social networks. They, just like with the spirit, they feed them. Um, they drink with them, um, they talk to them, they give them kinship names, they call them older brother or younger brother, so, so there is that act of socialisation and domestication. Um, they, they judge them and make it clear that they're imposing certain values on them. People have values about the appropriate way to behave, about reliability, about trust, about provision of information, and they make it clear to those agents of companies that there's some expectation that those um, values will be met. And if they're not met, I document one case of where people might be threatened or 
subject to, to violence. Um, and also, there's, there's something in the favour of the farmers in, in this environment in, in Thailand at the moment. This, I think, is perhaps quite historically specific, is there are a lot of these contracting companies um, looking for farmers to grow crops. So I suppose with, with economic growth in Thailand, with urbanisation, there's a lot of demand for high-quality vegetable crops and there are a lot of companies out there looking for farmers to do business with. So in a sense, at the moment, the balance of power is not as unequal as it might be um, and farmers have been able to benefit from this and I talk about some of those ways in which we've been able to do that in the book. You've mentioned already some of the work by scholars of everyday politics, Scott and Ben Kirkfleet in, in Vietnam, uh, also it's mentioned in the book, mm. and you distinguish the response of Thailand's political peasants as, as you see them uh, from the earlier responses of peasants or responses of peasants in other places that those scholars are describing, the distinction you make is between a nostalgic response as against an experimental response. Mm. So in what way are the political peasants in Thailand experimenting? And again, mm. how does this go to the larger discussion? In the so, so, and I write about this specifically in the, in the context of, of contract farming. And, and if you look at the enormously important and influential work of James Scott, um, I disagree with Scott on some points, but let me make it clear. I think this is foundational work, and I think our points of disagreement are really, I'm just talking about a different context and a different time um, to what he was talking about. But if you look at his moral economy of the peasant and also is very relevant in this context, um, weapons of the weak, you'll see that the, the moral economy um, peasants are drawing on that he describes in a sense, is a backward-looking one. It's looking back to a, a pre-capitalist era of relatively benign patron-client relations, and it's making calls and demands and protests based on that backward-looking one. Um, what I'm saying in my book is that the political response of the, the, the peasants in Bantium to contract farming, it draws on some of those nostalgic idioms our patrons have got to look after us, the company's got to look after us. It certainly draws on them. But by and large, it's a much more experimental orientation in terms of trying out different ways in which farmers can achieve higher productivity. Um, farmers realise that growing rice, um, growing traditional crops, um, is really not going to lift their living standards to meet the aspirations that they now have educate their um, children in Chiang Mai to buy mobile phones, to buy cars. Um, and they experiment actively um, and explicitly. Um, they try different crops. They, they plant a main crop but a couple of supplementary crops. They switch crops very quickly. It's a very volatile cropping environment, um, while at the same time growing rice in the wet season to maintain that subsistence stability. Let's move to the next chapter, yep. projects. Mm. The state and, again, the, the market and, and private donors all come together in this chapter and you use a, a provocative 
but perhaps provocative term up front to describe these is the the spirit shrines of the state. Um, so again, the linkage to the spiritual world coming through in this chapter in a different way from the preceding ones. Yeah, well, one of the features of the landscape of rural Thailand, of course, is spirit shrines. Um, but another feature of the landscape in rural Thailand is the number of signs you see um, signalling the existence of projects. Um, banana, sweet production projects, um, traditional herbal vegetable growing projects, fish pond building projects, community shop projects for exercise for young people. There's just an array of these projects and I describe a number of them in the book and talk about them as a key context where local people link their aspirations for livelihood improvement with the developmental agenda of the modern state. Um, James Ferguson, in his very famous book, The Anti-Politics Machine, describes development as, in some ways, as rendering technical um, what is political, so depoliticising um, development. My view is that these, these projects are incredibly productive of politics. Um, they are productive of interaction between local people and the state. They are productive of evaluations of how well the state or local political members or local district officers are performing and delivering development to the village. They are productive of rivalry within the village between people advocating for different projects. They are productive of corruption and allegations of corruption. So they are a real um, furnace, in a sense, um, for, for politics and for that, that political society I talk about, which is based on these formalised, semi-formal, completely informal interactions between local people and the state. Early in the book, you, you refer to the state as desirable, and the market as hollow. Is the desirability of the state in large part because of the productive force of these projects, or is that to oversimplify what, why it is that you might prefer to, to move towards the state rather than away from it? Why, why you talk now about even protest coming in the form of assembly rather than flight? Yes. So, so a lot of points there. Just let me talk in general terms first about the desirability of the state. Um, I talked about earlier the, the transition in rural Thailand from a, from a preoccupation with subsistence to a preoccupation with productivity. Um, another element of that, and this is, I think, a fundamentally important political change that hasn't received much attention and that is, if you look at Thailand and if you look at countries throughout the world, there's a very common trend from the state taxing the rural economy to subsidising it. Um, and that's one of the important contextual trends that I try to frame this book within. Now, we all know about Japan, where, where farmers are, are subsidised enormously, enormously. Um, Thailand's nowhere like that. Um, despite all the rhetoric about Thaksin's populism. Um, but Thailand has certainly followed this same path from taxation to subsidy. And that, I think, has produced 
or contributed to the production of a real shift in people's orientation to the state. Um, let's put it really crudely and simply: if the tax wants to, if the state wants to tax you, you try to avoid it. Um, if the tax wants, if uh, keep getting that mixed up, if the state wants to subsidise you, um, then you assemble in a way that makes yourself um, legible to the state. Jim Scott talks a lot about people's desire to make themselves illegible, um, invisible, confusing for the state. I like to talk in this book about the way people present themselves in a way to the state that's, that's very legible, that's very clear. Here we are, we're the village, here's our project, here's our uniform, um, please subsidise us, please fund us. And, you know, if you, if you like co- coining clever phrases, um, I describe this as a shift from the politics of legibility um, that Scott wrote about to the politics of eligibility. People want to be eligible for state subsidy. And that brings us firmly into the, the topic of the chapter on community, on housewives, uniforms and festivals. Can you tell us a bit about what's going so on? So just there? let me pick up on that thread of argument. Communities often been written about as a defensive barrier to the state. Um, you know, I think, I think Jim Scott quotes a famous Indonesian proverb or something that, you know, the power of the state stops at the gate of the village. Um, and we see an enormous body of work on local community rights, local community knowledge, which is all set up as an alternative to the state, as a contrast to the state. My argument in this book is that whether or not that was true historically is something we can argue about another time. My argument in this book is community has now become the practical and symbolic and ideological field for engagement with the state. Um, States love communities um, and communities love states. And what I write about in this book, the particular case study I use, is the the whole one of the projects in the village to produce uniforms for the for the mayor barn for the for the housewives group, and that project went badly wrong and cost the person who organised it politically um, very badly. And I ask, well, why would a project about housewives group uniforms cause such dissension in the village? And I suggest that it's because this is fundamentally about the community making itself clear and legible to the state. Um, These uniforms are used on occasions where quite literally the village assembles before the state and shows itself to the state and says, look what a good village we are, look how wholesome and hardworking our housewives are and please give us some subsidy. Um, So it's a really crucial little case study of the importance of this new subsidy relationship with the state. This is one of the chapters in the book where the distinction between terms in Thai matters quite a lot for what you're talking about. So if you can take a moment also to concentrate on the two different terms for community that are part of the the story of this part of the book and why they matter for the overarching discussion. Yeah, I, I, I presume you're talking about, you know, chumchon and the other word they use, the suenhuang. Um, chumchon has become, you know, it's a fairly new word. 
um, in the Thai language for for um, community. And I think its origins, my, my colleague Craig Reynolds has written about this, its origins lie significantly in development discourse. Um, so one of the ironies of the, the, the sort of civil society preoccupation with community as an alternative to the state is, in a very significant sense, community is a product um, of state discourse and state development action. Um, of course, that doesn't make it any less legitimate, but it makes it very interesting. Um, I'm interested in the book, in, in, in some of the interplay between this official developmental community and what might be seen as more localised ideas about the collective, um, the Suan Huang, and what I call in the book the sort of political economy of exchange between the, the private or the individual and the collective. And I think a lot of political debate, dissension, argument um, within the village um, about resource allocation is about the flow of benefits and advantage and opportunity back and forward um, between the individual, the suantua, and the collective, the suanhuam. And this is one of the, the very important local political dynamics um, that the book tries to explore. In most of the book, we, we're working through everyday politics and at the end we come to electoral politics mm -hmm. and the term you use, the rural constitution. Please tell us what's the rural constitution and how do everyday politics meet with electoral politics in uh, the rural economy of Thailand? So one of the, one of the arguments I put perhaps more implicitly than explicitly is the distinction that people draw all the time between everyday politics and electoral politics is perhaps a bit overdrawn. Um, especially over the last decade in Thailand, there's nothing more everyday than elections. Um, I document the number of elections that take place, national elections, re-elections, dissolved elections, local government elections, provincial elections, recounts, all that sort of thing. So, so elections have very much become part of everyday politics. Um, people talk about them, people position for them, people gossip about candidates, candidates are part of the community. Um, the projects are sites for political organisation, political lobbying. So I'm trying to disrupt this notion that's, that, that's sometimes held that the election is merely people going and putting their vote in a ballot box and therefore can be delegitimised. I'm trying to say that elections are part and parcel of everyday politics. And once again, I, I use a term in the interests of provocation and I develop this term, the rural constitution. And I'm arguing that constitutional statements about how politics should be conducted are not just the domain of um, the elite in Bangkok to draft. Um, it's not just about... Um, legal people or military appointed committees or constitutional courts um, to be the authors of these sets of values about how politics should be conducted. There is a rich, informal, um, undocumented um, set of values, set of ideas, set of precepts um, about how politics should be conducted and I call that the rural constitution. And in the, in the book, 
throughout the book, I'm trying to document this and I try to bring it together in that um, penultimate chapter in the book to say that this notion that rural people are not really engaged in politics or simply self-interested or only really engage on the day of the ballot or only really vote for whoever gives them money um, is a really grotesque stereotype. And I can't emphasise that enough. If there's if there's a feeling of passion um, in this book that inspired it, it's to challenge the grotesque stereotypes of um, the vote-selling peasant of Thailand. And, and the rural constitution says, well, here's a set of ideas, here's a set of values, here's a set of precepts. Some of them might be a bit messy. Some of them might not be that attractive to the sort of liberal champions of civil society, um, but it's a warts and all sort of constitution and it's a warts and all sort of guide to how politics in rural Thailand runs. And I think it's it's a rough and ready constitution that warrants a lot more attention. There are a variety of tensions in this constitution, as you're already implying, and we don't have time to go into them all, but one that comes out strongly in the chapter is the tension between localism mm. and uh, good administration. That's right. Can you say something about that tension? Because I think it illustrates well this, uh, the features and also the problems of the rural yeah. constitution. So, uh, exactly. There, there are tensions in this constitution, um, as there should be. Um, why should political attitudes be consistent? Um, that's just not the way humans work. And in, in the chapter, I document, you know, two key values that you've highlighted. One, there is a real interest in, in localism. Now, some people might want to dismiss that as parochialism or self-interest. Um, but, you know, people in rural northern Thailand are interested in the, the prosperity and the development of their local community, um, just as people in rural or urban Australia are. This is a perfectly normal, a perfectly normal political sentiment. People want to elect, elect candidates and elect governments who will help support and help develop um, the local area and the local community. And projects is one classic way in which that help can be provided. Um, at the same time, we all know that some of that local development is, is delivered in ways that we, we might call corrupt. Um, I don't think corruption is a particularly useful word, but let's just use it as a shorthand for the time being. Um, so alongside that, people have a real interest, a passionate interest in good administration. Um, the notion that local people don't care about maladministration is, is once again, a grotesque stereotype. Um, I found it to be, might be a bit strong to say it's a preoccupation, but it's an enormously common subject of discussion and gossip. You know, why did they have to spend so much on that road when they could have built it another way? Um, why did they give the contract to that person when so-and-so would have done a much better job? What's the point in building that facility for the market when we're going to move the market in five years? Um, this discourse of good administration is used actively to assess candidates and it influences the way people vote. So it's not all about, it's not all about just pouring money into the local community. It's about doing that in a way which meets um, 
emerging standards, and I'll emphasise these are emerging standards of, of governance. And in the closing chapter, you argue that um, the feature of, of Thaksin and his party was that they really recognised and, and capitalised on these emergent features of, of rural Thailand and also the aspirations that, that people had. Now, um, perhaps we won't go into a, a discussion of, of what happened in 2005, 2006, 2007, but rather in, in closing, I'd like to, to come back to the discussion we were having at the start about Chatterjee's political society, because at the end of the book you raise the question, is political society civil? Mm. What do you mean by that, and what's the answer to the question? Mm. Mm. Well, I suppose I argue that, in a sense, political society isn't civil in the sense that we use to talk about civil society. Um, Political society and, and... the important political contexts I address in the book aren't about formal civil society organisations. Um, they aren't about NGOs. Um, in, in many respects, I think it's fair to say they aren't about formal rights of citizens. Um, this is very much the, the, the domain of civil society. Um, Politics, as I talk about it in the book, and let me emphasise, I don't want to romanticise this politics. It's full of you know, gossip and backstabbing and sometimes violence and theft and all those sorts of things, but let's understand it in, in its own terms. This politics is based much more on informal connections, informal associations, direct relationships with officials from the state, um, to pick up on a metaphor I talked about before, it's about strings. Um, it's about your strings, your connections, your ties. And if we if we can put things very simply, overly simply, to the extent that Tuxin was electorally popular in the village where I worked, and let me emphasise, he wasn't universally popular, it was a sense that there were pretty short and pretty direct and pretty influential strings between the village and, and the government, and that the intermediaries at province level and even district level and the civil society intermediaries were cut out of the picture. Um, now, that, that's putting it very simply. Um, the, the reality of it is much more complex, and it's about particular local members people wanted to vote for or not vote for for all sorts of reasons. But um, to come back to your question, tucks in was evaluated in these political society terms um, very positively. Um, People weren't blind to the corruption um, or to the allegations of corruption. They weren't blind to the faults of the government. I talk about them at some length in the book. But bringing all those political society values together, bringing that rural constitution together, on balance, um, they... Many of them were happy to offer him their political support. Andrew, the book was published in 2012. And um, what have you been working on since and what can we look forward to? Well, one of the great sadnesses for me, Nick, I must say, is I can't go back to that village. Um, I'm not in a position to travel to Thailand. I've been banned by the Thai government um, for reasons of political commentary that I've made, especially comments I've made about the monarchy. So 
Um, that's a, a great sadness for me personally and, and professionally. Um, so over the last few years, I've started, to the extent that I've had time with administrative duties, I've started to focus on some comparative questions and I've developed a real interest in, in North Asia, um, Korea and Japan in particular. And I talked about this trajectory from taxation to subsidy and no two countries are better representatives of rural subsidy um, than Japan and Korea. And I'm really fascinated in looking at the ways in which they've achieved, in a sense, a rural transformation with a small and highly subsidised rural sector that by and large is the subject of a political consensus. There's not a lot of political challenge to that that rural agreement they have in those countries. Um, Thailand has got a very long way to move along that path. Um, They have a very large subsidised and not very productive rural sector and whether or not Thailand is going to be able to make a transition away from that I think is a really key question in determining Thailand's political future. So I'm going to try to approach these questions from now on um, with a much broader brush um, and a much larger scale comparative eye. I hope we don't lose you in Southeast Asian studies and um, look forward to the comparisons that you'll be making um, with your coming work on North Asia as well. Um, We've been listening to Andrew Walker speak about his book, Thailand's Political Peasants, Power in the Modern Rural Economy, published by University of Wisconsin Press in 2012. Andrew, I've greatly enjoyed the discussion. Thank you for coming. I've enjoyed it too. Thanks for for doing it. Thanks very much. And uh, I look forward to having you on the podcast next time. Uh, listeners for uh, further discussions on new books in With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.